This is the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 29. I'm your host, Dill, and today we're doing something a little out of the ordinary for the show, and that's a shorter 30-minute interview over the phone, which I've avoided simply for quality reasons, but when it's better than Ezra founding member and bassist Tom Drummond, you make an exception. Tom and Better Than Ezra burst onto the national scene in 1995 with the number one modern rock track, Good, but what looked like overnight success was really seven years of do-it-yourself ingenuity and hard work. Thirty years and a dozen albums and EPs later, they're still at it with the same fortitude. I caught up with Tom while on the last Summer on Earth tour with the Bare Naked Ladies and KT Turnstall, and our conversation, speaking between two soup cans and a string, went just like this. Knowing what I know of you guys, um, you know, you came out of LSU back in 88. Is that when you graduated? No. <clears throat> that was my first semester. Okay. Um, oh, interesting. I was, actually, I was actually there on a NASA scholarship um, in the aerospace program. <laughs> right. Um, but I had been in a successful band all through high school, so, you know, enjoyed playing music. I was missing it, and... Um, I knew, honestly, I knew after our first rehearsal that this was something special. Um, you know, like I said, I'd been in pretty successful bands all through high school. Like, we were playing bars and stuff underage and, and we're doing well. So I knew what it took to kind of do it. Right. But as soon as we had, as soon as Ezra had their first rehearsal, I was like, oh, this is something special. This is different <laughs> than what I'd been involved in. No, really. And I was like, I've got to pursue this, you know, it was like a leap of faith, a bit of a leap of faith at the time, you know, and then it got harder and harder for me to do both. Right. Um, Because we started, the band got popular very quickly um, and we started playing four or five nights a week. That's just hard to do school and that. So I had to make a decision, um, which, you know, my parents were not very happy about. Right. um, Initially. Now they're, big supporters of course but you know then it's 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 tough you know because everybody knows how difficult it is to make it in the music business it's, it's just there's no guarantees you know no matter how good you are yeah there's a thousand other no it's good uh you know but you no, did have no. that local you, there was that kind of groundswell locally that at least you can there point was. to and say mom and dad initial things su- are moving yeah initial support was good and you know we got a van we bought a van started touring regionally we always felt that in order to really become a good band, you needed to play out of town to see if you really are any good. Right. Um, you know, if you play for 10 people in a pizza one night in St. Louis, well, then the next time you come back, you know, there's 50 people. And that's kind of how it worked for us. And, you know, this is before the time of cell phones. This is before the Internet. So it was really a word-of-mouth thing. You just had to go out there and do it. And, you know, so each one of us had sort of a job assigned to us. And my job was to make sure that wherever we were playing had the posters and when we were playing and they were hung up and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so we we worked our ass off. We worked our ass off for seven years before we had a record deal. I mean, we were hitting it hard, playing everywhere we could, you know, in the southeast. Anywhere where we were living in Baton Rouge and New Orleans at the time and anywhere that we could get to. Um, that's what we did. So let's talk about those seven years. So at one point, you guys moved to L.A., right? Yeah, we did. Yeah. And was that just, did you feel like you were in the wrong place to, quote-unquote, make it? Well, yes and no. Um, 
you know, we recorded two demos there, which would eventually become deluxe. So I can't say the time there was not well spent because it was. However, you know, out there at the time, it was pay to play. Right. You had to literally, if you didn't bring a hundred people to your show, you had to pay for the tickets that you were lacking. It was that sort of an environment. Right. Um, and but meanwhile, we could fly back every couple of months and play a sold out show to a thousand people. And so we ended up getting a manager there. And just sort of realizing that, you know, all the musicians in L.A. are like, why are you here when you can go tour the South and sell out 800,000-seat theaters? And we're right. like, you, got, you make a good point. So we took what, you know, became Deluxe, um, a CD, and we put it out ourselves. We went to consignment, like every store in the region. We would visit before our show. We would make sure they were stocked up. You know, we had our own UPC code. We were sound scanning. Um, and then fortunate enough to get a couple of radio stations in the South started to play the record, and then the sales started to happen. That's interesting. So, you know, we were doing it ourselves. And, and in fact, often when I'm asked if you're going to tell a young musician what should they do, I always tell them, do what you need to do yourself. Do not hand off to someone else. Right. It, it seems that's like that's when you get screwed. It seems like this day and age is more apt to be do it yourself, whereas back when you guys did it, not so, or at yeah. least there's a lot more tools these days, but you know, I guess you can't argue that, you know, not something done right. Know, cause, yeah, because, you know, I produce on the side, I have a studio in New Orleans, but and I'll see young artists who will do their demo or whatever, and then they'll just want to hand it off, as if it's just going to magically happen. And I'm like, guys, that's not the way this works, you know? Like, they just think because they've produced a pretty good sounding demo that it's just going to fly and that everybody in the world's going to buy it. Well, it's, no. That's not it. Right. You have to understand that the music being good is just a given. That's that's just that's just opening the door. You got to figure out how to get it to you know. You got to figure out what to do with it from there, and, and that's the part they don't really get. At least the young artists don't yet. You know, so they're they're relying on the fact that they have digital uh, delivery. Right. You know, uh, distribution, which is a totally different game than when we started. Um, but they just assume that because you can put it on. Core that it's just going to happen, right? A lot of luck, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I'm sure for some people maybe it does happen. You get an internet sensation that goes viral, but I mean that's you know one in a million. Yeah, too too few and far between. So who had the business sense in the band, you know, to get like a UPC code and you know to we, do small stuff like that? We were like I said from the very beginning, we have been hands on with everything. Even when we signed the deal with Electra, it involved clauses that allowed us to be hands-on um there are a lot of things about that deal that were very unique um you know deluxe has been in the black since week or since month like six of that record and And it's not cross-collateralized with any of the other records you know so it's it's been a nice thing to have you know Um, but those are the sort of things um, that we did initially to ensure a long career right Let's get a little bit into Electra because at one time, it, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you play maybe a, I don't know if it was a showcase of South by Southwest, but that could that kind of get yeah. the ball rolling with labels kind of coming to yep. you? It did. Um, we had we already had a good buzz going. Uh, like I said, we were putting our record in consignment. We were visiting the college radio stations. We were doing all the things that a baby band would do on a major label anyway. Um, so we were doing that, um, and then sort of came to a head when we played South by Southwest, 
Um, we were one of the first bands to get a big signing out of out of that thing, and now it's more video games oriented, right. I think. <laughs> but um, but at the time, it was a very significant thing. We played we played that in March, and then we played the CMJ Music Fest in New York. I think that fall. It took that long. Wow. For the sort of well, that's the you know we were being wined and dined by like five or six different major labels between March and I think it was November of 93. Um, and, you know, we we're trying to figure out who we wanted to go with. And then finally, Sylvia Roan came to the show. It seemed just like, we got to do this. So, and we liked Electra, and we always thought Electra was a cool label, had a lot of really cool artists on it. So that was very appealing to us. But also, she was our A&R person. So when the president of the company is your contact, it's sort of a no-brainer. Yeah, that makes sense. I was going to ask why Electra. That's that's interesting that they you know they, they put that effort yeah. forth. Yeah, because you know in another label you would have had an A and R person or a middle manager or something, and then then you're just relying on them to be able to get the job done. When it's the president, whatever she says goes. You know, so that was a big uh, influence on our decision. Did she stay with Electra for the duration you guys were with yeah, them? She did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was um, there all the way through the three three. We had a three record deal, which was also very unusual. Usually, back then, you got a one record deal and like a five option. Right. We got a three guaranteed, which was really cool. But again, we had done all the work. Yeah. All we did was basically deliver them an album that went on to become you know whatever it's sold now, nearly multi platinum. So. Now let me ask you this: In so deluxe, you you guys released deluxe in '93, and then it yeah. was. Uh, and that was released on Electra in 95. In 95 yeah. is when Good hit the um, modern rock number one, yes. right? Now, yes. was it was it Electra that gave it that extra push to bring it to number one? Or did they bring oh, something yeah, to the yeah, table yeah. for so, you guys? So, so the timeline is we released it in the like August of 93. We played that South by Southwest show March of 94. Meanwhile, the record's still getting buzz. Getting airplay on like uh, 99X in Atlanta and the Zephyr in New Orleans. But once we signed the deal uh, with Electra, which was around the holiday time, um, it came out February 28th, 95. And then seven weeks later, Electra's uh, staff had pushed it to number one. Okay. So you do give them a bit of credit of getting it oh, over, the, over the hump. Oh, yeah. No, no question. They did a great job on that record um that also was um distributed by a company called ada which was a sort of independent distribution um that they wanted to use for the more i guess indie bands right. at the time and it's still their was their first platinum record um so there were a lot of things that were just in the right place at the right time uh, they were working really hard because they really wanted it to fly, you know. And obviously, every major label wants their records to fly, but they don't always know how to do it. Sure. Um, so, yeah, just a lot of a lot of the dominoes were in place and fell at the right time. So, let me let me move from, let me segue from Deluxe to Friction Baby. With Deluxe to self finance, is everything you're doing at that point kind of whatever you're making, playing, you're sinking back into the band? Or into recording or demos or, you know, what Before, became Deluxe? Uh, going, like, uh, creating Deluxe. Yeah, we make Deluxe for $5,000, including our first 1,000 copies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on basically 
Demi Pro equipment. It was like half inch tape. You know, it was right. like uh, on one of the tracks in the blood, we actually had to record guitar going into the final mastering. We had to put a guitar, but we ran out of tracks. Oh my gosh, how funny. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. That's the kind of thing we were dealing with, you know. So yeah. So I'd say for given that we spent five thousand dollars on that album and it's nearly double double platinum, it's pretty pretty good return. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So then going into Friction Baby, did you guys were you guys you know you used a, a well known producer? Were yeah. You, did you have a big budget? Did you? We did. did. You, were you anxious to utilize that, or were there any lessons learned going into or coming out of that uh, album? Look, we still love that album, and and I would say that a lot of people probably say desperately wanting's our biggest song, even though good shows more spins. Um, I guess if I would have to say anything, we sort of fell into the machine a little bit, right? Um, because once people know you have a major label deal, well, their prices, you know, they basically add a couple zeros on whatever their price was before, you know, right? Um, which I think is just how. The machine works, you know? So, yeah, I mean, certainly the big-name producer and the studio and all that stuff, the budgets were much higher. Um, and I think that that's sort of the trap a lot of bands fall into and why they never recoup, because they're like, oh, well, here's all this money, but it's just a loan, right. you know? Right. But they're giving it to you, you know? Uh, I won't say it's interest-free, you know, because they're, they're charging back everything you do, dinners and going out and all that stuff where you think they're buying you stuff they're not they're charging you back now how long how long were you aware of that like right i mean you had pretty, oh, right pretty good away. management we, I mean, and we were i mean like i said we've been pretty business snappy about the whole thing since the very beginning mm-hmm. um and i think again that's another thing that musicians don't do is they don't educate themselves about how it really works um and that's why you know you see bands come and go and you see other bands stick around for 30 years right so moving on to how does your garden grow? Was there yep. another? Was that another conscious effort to? Did you guys record that? At, that was at Fudge Studios, which is your we studios, did. correct? Or? Yeah, with Malcolm Byrne. Yep. And was, um, was that a conscious effort to like let's scale it back, take more control? You know, not be watching the clock so much or be aware of the clock so much. A little or? bit, but we just also knew that we, like I said, we always had a long term vision and we thought that the best move would be to create our own space to record and work out songs and, and instead of hiring a studio and paying a bunch of money for it. Um, so that way we could just do our thing whenever we wanted, whenever, uh, where, sorry, whenever we wanted to. And it worked out well. And also, you know, while. Friction Baby was sort of our effort to show what the band could really sound like live. Because while there's a very endearing portion of how Deluxe sounds, it, at the time we didn't feel like it was really the, the band. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to get down on in a recording what the band really is trying to do. Right. There's a lot of things go into that. And a lot of things have to be in place. I will say that for a rock record, Friction Baby sounds pretty darn good. Yeah, no, I love but it. But there's more to the band than just the rock. And so that's kind of what we were trying to do with How Does Your Garden Grow? This is a show that we can be experimental. We're not just a guitar-based band, but we have these other elements that we'd like to include. And so that's kind of where it went. Okay. Um, 
I'm going to sidetrack here just a little bit. As I was sure. waiting for you to call me back, I stumbled upon you guys on Letterman doing good back yeah. until Lux came out. How how surreal was stuff like that when you were you know making it onto Letterman and Leno and you know whatever was on yeah. at the time? Yeah, there was you know for us it was the ultimate and it's TV like that. It's probably it's probably like the only thing I get nervous about anymore. Oh, really? That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean you grow up watching the late show or the late night and you know you're just like wow those are the bands you always want to be you want to emulate how do you get there right definitely a definitely a goal you know it's definitely a benchmark um yeah so no those were fantastic and uh you got to see that i'm trying to remember which one was i had a big old hair wall and that didn't yeah yeah yeah. you had uh it was was flowing (laughs) yeah um kevin just posted the video for good um because we're you know we're re-releasing deluxe on vinyl uh, right. next month, and uh, everybody's like, "Oh my god, look at Tom's hair!" This <laughs> <laughs> is funny. Um, so I, I, I won't I won't go through everything one by one, but I think there's a, a, a certain conversation around you know when when you guys leave Electra, and that's I think that's in '99, and a lot's happening. Napster's just bubbling up. iTunes I think yeah. comes a year or two later. Where was your mindset in terms of, like, you're always talking about long-term vision. And, yeah. And it seems like this is a time where everything's turned upside down. Where, yeah. where, where was What was your strategy then? Well, I think uh, How's Your Garden Grow was definitely, um, I should say, it's a more artistic album, maybe a less commercial album. Um, and Electra didn't really know what to do with it. I mean... One More Murder was the lead song from the X-Files soundtrack when the movie came out, and it actually did quite well. And then At the Stars charted, too, but I don't know that they were sure what they were going to do with us. Right. <laughs> but we knew we had, I mean, we put out, after that, uh, Closer was the next album, and a lot of us think that's maybe our best album. Um, so, you know, I, sometimes getting everybody on the same page is hard to do. Was it a disappointment leaving Electra, or was it a yeah, mutual thing? Yeah, I mean, or? sure, sure. I mean, anytime you're on a major label, you want to stay there. I mean, just for the sheer resources of radio, you know, especially because we were a radio-driven band. Right. Um, definitely, in the PR department and all that, you know, cer- certainly we would have probably have liked to have stayed, but at the same time, who knows what would have happened. We might not be talking today. Right. <laughs> well, also in, with the peaks and valleys that come with any long career, yeah. you know, yeah. how, what, what's your mindset to endure through the tougher times? You know, I think um, we've kind of seen it all. Um, I think we're just very confident in that we're, we're a good band. Uh, we, we bring a great live show. People love coming to the show and having fun. Um, and so I think, you know, that that's also a big element today that maybe is missing from some of the younger artists where the, they don't understand you got to deliver a show that people want to come back to over and over again. Right. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, for us, it was just a part of life. And we just moved on and um, kept doing what we've done since the beginning. And we feel like we're not a gimmicky band. The, the biggest gimmick we have is the name. <laughs> uh, we just like putting out consistent good mu- music that, that you know that people can get into, right? And it, it changes a bit over the years, but it's still us, you know. 
Yeah, it seems like you guys have a very strong fan base, too. We do. We always have. You know, and I will say, early on, we were very involved with fans. Like, I was on the computer, on the laptop. People were emailing us song requests. I was answering it, you know. And so, this is like 94, 95. Right. And we, would, we had our website up, and we would say, request songs for tonight. And we would play whatever the top request was, you know. And we would do that sort of thing. And we were very interactive with our fan base initially, and uh, I think it went a long way. Um, let's talk a little bit about the future, then I'll wrap it up. I just have five questions I ask everybody on the show. Sure. But uh, before we do, um, Grateful, your new single, how's that being received? Very well. Uh, it seems to really be connecting with our, um, our fan base. In fact, I would say I haven't felt this connection since Good. When we first put out Good, before it was on the major label, right? Like fans and friends would come up and say, what is that song? Oh, you that's know? good. Uh, so we're getting that kind of a response. Um, Sirius XM started playing it this week. Uh, we'll just see what happens, you know? Sounds good. And yeah. uh, you mentioned earlier the 25th anniversary of Deluxe, the reissue. Yep. Is that going to have yep. bonus tracks or demos or any uh, extra no, material? It's, it's, um, it's a double because, <laughs> I mean, I guess in the 90s we made long albums. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't fit on one LP, so... Uh, we had to do double. There's a little bit more artwork in there, uh, but as far as songs go, it, it's just like the album. Okay. And then, uh, 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 last question before I get to the five questions, um, and I think you did mention this earlier. So, Melville Production Studios—that's your yeah. studio. Yes. So that's you, kind of branching out when you have downtime. Not downtime, but that's you know, yes. kind of diversifying yourself. Yes, and uh, I'll produce regional type acts who are trying to sort of get from the local to the next level, you know. Um, but also, I'll use it like I recorded the bass stuff for Grateful there. You know, I'll just whatever I might need to do. I do some stuff for like ESPN and instrumental stuff, you know, I do all kind of things. It's always good to diversify. Yeah, that's cool. All right, I'll, uh, I'll let you go after these last five questions. So uh, question right. number one is, your house, your studio, your storage unit is on fire. What music-related uh, artifact do you save? Wow. Uh, well, my studio is in my house, <laughs> uh, so I probably grab the hard drives. Okay, you have hard drives with everything you've done in the yep. past yeah. What is it now? Thirty. And years? what I'm working on, and what I'm working on currently. Yeah. Okay. Uh, question number two. I think I have the answer, but uh, hypothetically, if Rockonomics had the means to give you a million dollars for a charity, which charity would you give it to? <laughs> well, I'd give it to the Better Than Esther Foundation. <laughs> can you can you give us all a top line of that? Yeah. So since Katrina, we just felt like we needed to find a way to help New Orleans recover. Um, and initially we did stuff with first responders and we did some stuff with Brad Pitt's Make It Right. But as time went on, we decided we wanted to find a way to make sure we had control over where the money was going and that sort of thing. So we started doing after-school programs for underprivileged kids. That's great. We felt like, we felt like instead of sort of throwing money into a well, it's something that we could really make a difference with. Right. That's great. I see. I see a lot of the stuff you do. Do you have an annual golf tournament? We do. We have one coming up uh, October twelfth. We also have a, which is in Baton Rouge. We have a. We do three, four events a year. We have a tailgate party. We're going to have before the Monday night football game between the Saints and the Redskins. Oh wow, that would be cool. 
yeah, it'd be fun. Are you a good golfer? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) I have my own clubs, but that's about as... I don't get to play enough, you know? It's a game where you really got to play at least once a week. Right, right. Yeah, I know. I hear you. That's uh, that's my life. Um, Question number three is, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? Oh, wow. (laughs) Ah, man, I don't know. I've never been asked that question. (laughs) Um, Wow. Uh... I don't know, man. I feel like it'd be Marvin Gaye or something. <laughs> I'm soulful. Give, it, give us some thought. You can text me later. <laughs> okay. Okay, on the, on the flip side of that is what song is stuck on repeat in hell? Oh, God. Uh, probably Four Non Blondes, What's Going On. Oh, my God. It's so funny. You're the second person who said that. <laughs> That's funny. I'm going to have to have that woman on one of these days, uh, the main songwriter. Um, and last but not and least, I know she's a great. I know she's a great songwriter. You yeah. know, I mean, I know she is. It's just something about that song is annoying. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Linda Perry, that's the name I was looking for. Yeah, but she uh, wrote "Beautiful" for uh, Christina Aguilera. I mean, I know she's a great songwriter. You know, I'm, you know what? I'm sure she might say the same answer. Yeah, probably. If she so. got that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, question five. Last question is: uh, What's the best concert you've ever witnessed? Uh, there's a few. I saw Radiohead, Radio City Music Hall on uh, OK Computer. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah, that was um, Yeah, that was a great show. Uh, I just saw Coldplay on their stadium tour in Chicago at Soldier Field. That was really amazing. It's a fucking event, you know? It's yeah. more than just the music. All the wristbands and the confetti and just like a giant party. That was great. I mean... I've always been a huge U2 fan, so they always do great shows. Um, have you seen this tour they're on now? I have not. I saw the last one. Uh, I have not seen this current one. I'm sure it's great. But, I, you know, I think Bono seems like he's not quite as mobile as he used to be. Yeah, he's, true. He's uh, a little restricted from where he was, you know, like on Octone Baby, and that stuff is amazing. That tour is amazing. Yeah. Now, oh, have, I got your song. I got your song. Okay. Pixies, Monkey Gone to Heaven. (laughs) That's great. I love that song. Very uh, apropos. Yeah, we love the Pixies. You can probably hear that in our music. (laughs) Well, Tom, I appreciate you taking the time out and uh, giving me uh, me 30 minutes. Absolutely, Tim. Have a great show and uh, rest of your tour. Okay, man. Thank you so much. All right. Big thanks to Tom Drummond of Better Than Ezra for calling in. For news, tour dates, and links to the Better Than Ezra Foundation, please go to betterthanezra.com. Please join us again next week for another big show with a very well-known bassist who made it big in the 80s with a platinum-selling metal band and has spent the last 14 years with a classic rock band with 10 multi-platinum albums and 16 top 30 hits. So don't miss that. Episode 29 has met his demise. Good night, Cleveland. Cleveland.